We have been looking, oh, let's start with scripture. That's probably a good place to start. Start at the very beginning. It's a wonderful place to start. Colossians, first chapter. No, third chapter, first verse. And I got to get my mouth going with my brain. So, first, third chapter, first verse. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on, the, on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. As we are in Lord's, Lord's Day 17 of the catechism, we have been talking about the person of Christ in this section. And in the Apostles' Creed, it says this, uh, this section on Christ. In Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. We commonly call that the humiliation of Christ. Not that he was embarrassed, but he left the glories that were, that were his in heaven. He humbled himself to come into the midst of his creation and to be rejected by that which he had made. And all of his life, from the incarnation through his burial, is that humiliation. I mean, you're creator of the universe. You have made all this. You even have made Pontius Pilate and everything else. And they turn on you. That's his humbling. But he humbled himself for ours. Now in the, in the creed, the Apostles' Creed, it turns from humiliation to the exaltation. So it talks about the third day he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From then he shall come to judge the living and the dead. And it talks about his exaltation in three ways. His resurrection from the dead, his ascension into heaven, where he takes his place as the royal ruler of all the universe. And finally, that he will, one day will return to judge the quick, the living and the dead. Uh, that is what we are starting today in Lord's Day 17. I, let me read the question and answer, and then we'll begin to dissect it. Sounds like biology class. Yes. I, got a couple, I have a grandson, grandchild, who is excited to be back here in the United States because they can dissect frogs. And he told that while we were having spaghetti. <laughs> Question 45, what benefit do we receive from the resurrection of Christ? First, by his resurrection, he has overcome death, that he might make us partakers of the righteousness which he has obtained for us by his death. Second, by his power, we are also now raised up to a new life. And third, the resurrection of Christ is to us a sure pledge of our blessed resurrection. And in your outline, we have not only that question, but also the three-part answer, which we'll, we'll take a look at today. What benefits do we receive? What, I want you to note something about this. This creed, this uh, catechism, 
was developed back in uh, 1565, in that range. Notice what it doesn't say. Did Christ rise from the dead? See, that's the question that is on the church's mind in our day and age. And I say not only the culture, but even in the church. Because we have skeptics and cynics and unbelievers who will question whether or not even Christ rose. Even though it's probably the most best attested fact of history. They still think, no, no, he, he rose in a, quote, spiritual body. By that they mean it wasn't physical. It was in the minds and the hearts of the disciples. And therefore, they preached out of their love and loyalty to the rabbi with whom they'd been for three and a half years. They preached him and they said, he rose from the dead. He lives within our hearts. Sounds like some, some hymns. I know he lives because he lives within my heart. No, we know he lives because he rose from the dead. If you are not sure yourself, there are some great books out there that will help you understand this. Uh, Josh McDowell has done a couple, More Than a Carpenter, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. It'll give you that. We're not going to do it today. It just reminds us Christianity is, is a historic faith. Not only that it has history, but it's based on history. It's based on literal events that have taken that are unchangeable, and therefore it is believable because you cannot go back and change things. Christ is risen from the dead. That cannot be undone. Uh, note even how Paul talks, or Peter talks about this in his first sermon. Remember, when Christ died, the disciples were discouraged. They were disheartened. I mean, they, they were hiding because they thought, now nah, they're coming for us. But what he, when, when he rose, all of a sudden things changed. And when he sent his spirit, they really changed. There's a new power. But when he does his first sermon, he talks about this Christ whom you crucified, God has raised from the dead. For it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David said concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Psalm 16, that last verse is verse 10. It's a promise. And if you look at that psalm, it's a psalm about more about the Messiah than it is us. That's a nice promise for us. You will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. But if you're honest with yourself, none of us are holy. I mean, we don't, don't even come close. You broke probably almost every of the Ten Commandments since you woke up this morning. Oh, think about that. Isn't that fun? But it is about Christ. His Holy One will not see to corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. That though he had died and he was put in a tomb... On the third day, according to a Hebrew way of thinking, a third day he rose again, and he rose incorruptible. He rose in a new way. That is fact. But that's not what the, the catechism is talking about. Again, it's a pastoral, uh, pastoral 
document. I put on the back of your insert the Westminster Confession, the uh, larger catechism, and the question about the resurrection. If you read through that, there's some really great things, and it's pretty in-depth. But the focus is on that Christ did rise. Heidelberg Catechism says, what's, what benefit is that to us? Okay, he rose. So what? So what? And they answer it in three ways. One, by his resurrection, he's overcome death, and he's made us partakers of the righteousness which he obtained for us from his death. He overcame death. Uh, looked at the historic cross in Psalm 16. It was promised in the New Testament. And you know, if, if whenever you get to the place, and you will, of reading a scripture and not being able to understand it, think about the disciples. Four times, and I've just put two down there as, as references. Four times Jesus said, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over to individuals, to the rulers. I will be flogged. I will be crucified. But on the third day, I will rise. They heard the first part. And I think their minds went blank. What do you mean you're going to die? How can the Messiah die? And they missed the whole part of third day, I'm going to rise from the dead. He told them four times what was going to happen. And they didn't believe it. Because when he rose from the dead and the women came back and told him, told the disciples, they go, what? What do you mean? And Peter and John had a, a race out to the tomb. It's because they had to see it. They didn't believe what Jesus had to say. I mean, that's comforting for me. Because there are some things in scripture that are really difficult to, to deal with. And if they did, then I feel better about myself. It doesn't mean it's good. I just feel better. That's my benefit and comfort in life. This is a reality that they saw the promise. And they saw something magnificent that had happened. If you turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15, keep your finger there because we're going to be coming back to that time and time again. 1 Corinthians 15 is Paul's answer to some questions that the Corinthians had about the resurrection. And in 1542 to 49, he talks about how Jesus rose. So, is it with the resurrection of the dead? He's already said, uh, what kind of body do they have? It gives, God gives it a body he has chosen. So, it, it, is it with the resurrection of the dead? What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus, it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. And as was a man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. 
Paul is, is telling us that there's a transformed body that took place in Jesus' resurrection. Just like this, we're, we're mo- we finally moved into fall. First day of fall. Your egg stood up on its end yesterday. If you, if you were up at 9.45 last night and did it. You're, you, we've entered into a period in which what was sown as pure seed is now growing as corn and soybeans and tomatoes and everything else. It was sown in one type, raised in another. And aren't we glad for that? That's what the resurrection of the body, and that's what the resurrection of Christ was. It it was sown a body just like ours, but it was raised, and Paul uses this term, a spiritual body. And by that, he doesn't mean immaterial. He means it was a body that was fit for heaven and for his new, for Jesus' new adventure of being in heaven with his Father and fully Lord of all the earth. That's what he means. Some have taken this, as I mentioned before, some who believe, do not believe in a physical resurrection. They say Paul is talking about a spiritual resurrection now. Uh, if you read the first part of that chapter, you'll see he, he firmly believed that Christ rose physically from the dead. He appeared to the disciples and to 500 at one time. This is not an illusion. It's not mass hypnosis. It's not the kind of things that people want to say. He rose from the dead, but in a spiritual body. Now, some have taken that, well, he has a body that can go through walls. And part of that is because when he came to his disciples that first night and the eighth night, it says he suddenly appeared. But the word appeared is not one that goes, poof, there he is. You know, like Star Trek, beam me down, Scotty. It is that he all of a sudden came. And when it says that he disappeared from the uh, people on the Emmaus Road when they were eating and they finally recognized it, it doesn't mean, poof, he went away. Beam me up, Scotty. It means he walked away that's the that's the idea of that word but it was a body that was fit for his new position and so he could ascend into heaven which we'll take a look at next week in this body this resurrected body because it was ready to go to heaven and that's what the resurrection is he is also the first fruits Chapter 15, 1 Corinthians, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in its own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he is, uh, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. First fruits are that first part of reaping the crop. Remember the story of Jesus when he cursed the fig tree, and people go, "Why? Why? Why would he spend time cursing a fig tree?" 
He says, why, why not only the energy, but doesn't that seem kind of nebulous? Well, it says that fig tree was the first fruits of the crop of figs, except the fig tree didn't have any figs. And he's simply saying, you are barren, and barren you will be. Christ is the first fruits. He is the one who shows us what the, the reality for all of us who are believers when he comes are going to be like. So part of the benefit is Jesus provided all that we need in our salvation. In his life, he lived for our righteousness, or he lived a righteous life to be able to give to us. In his death, he died not only to take away our sin, that's expiation, but propitiation, that is to take away the wrath or absorb the wrath of the Father. Why? So that we could be loved by God without limits. The sin is gone, the wrath is gone, we can be adopted into his family. By tasting death, he tasted what all of us are going to do unless, he, unless the Lord comes back, that we will all have to face our last breath. We will have had our last birthday. We will have seen our grandchildren, great-grandchildren, sometimes children or friends for the last time. And he said, I tasted that for you. I've already gone through that for you. And in his resurrection... It's as if God put his good housekeeping, or maybe it's God's housekeeping, seal of approval on what Jesus did in his life, death, burial. And the resurrection says, this is real. It's true. Believe it. Live it. Love it. That's what God was doing in, that, in the resurrection. And in essence, as Paul has been talking about in 1 Corinthians 15, God is also saying, this is what I have for you. You are a material body. You are perishable. You are dishonored because of sin. But I will raise you imperishable. I will give you honor. I will give you all this. And so God is, the benefit is, we know that God loves us. He gives us great comfort and hope all because Christ has been raised from the dead. That's why it's such a key doctrine. The other side of that, in that first answer, is he can make us partakers with him. Turn to Romans, the fourth chapter. Paul is talking about Abraham being justified by faith, not his works. And at the end of that chapter, it's talking about the promise has been realized by faith. Verse 23, Paul writes, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification remember justification is God declaring that we are perfect or we are uh, not sinners because not because of anything we've done not even because we believed but because of the life death and resurrection of Jesus 
He was raised for our justification. And we have become partakers with him. Second word I have there is practice. Because sanctification comes by the Spirit, and the Spirit can only be given after Jesus was raised and ascended. It had to be the Father and the Son sending the Spirit to his, uh, to his people. And it is the Spirit who sets us free and who works within us. Again, back to 1 Corinthians 15. So your, your little fingers are going to work real hard on your cell phone. Or you're going to do a lot of changing pages. He, Paul has taken this whole chapter to talk about the resurrection. He ends it with the sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then there's this little word. Therefore, in light of the resurrection of Christ, my beloved brothers, and that could be my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, Lord your labor is not in vain. That's sanctification. Be steadfast. Be faithful. Be loyal. Act as who you are in uh, not only position, but what the Spirit is doing in practice, making you look like Jesus. Be steadfast, be immovable. Do not change. Do not waver. Do not be fluctuated by the things that are happening in the world. Abounding in the work of the Lord. And the work of the Lord is not simply evangelism, preaching, teaching, reading your Bible, praying, things like that. The work of the Lord is anything you do for him. Changing chandeliers, cleaning a building, emptying another building so it can be sold and we can take the money and pay down the mortgage. All the stuff, your work day by day and your business is part of the work of the Lord because the way in which you do it shows something about the Lord Jesus. It's an opportunity for you to show how much you love him. Your, your lifestyle, to see how you're growing over all these years. Now, I have a few more years than most of you here. One of the things I like about birthdays is thinking back about all those years. It's been 49 years since I came to Christ. 49, some of you haven't even gotten close to 49 years. But I also know the difference between when I came to Christ and where I am now. The work, the work he's done in my life, the changes he's made. And yesterday, my birthday, the only gift I wanted was to see my grandchildren and children. Because that's part of the work of the Lord. See, that's sanctification. That's thinking about how he's changed and altered and how he has so directed your life that you are who you are right now. And he is at work to make you what he wants you to be tomorrow. And that's all comes from the resurrection. The power that was released. If you go with me to uh, Ephesians. Ephesians. 
I told you, your, your, your uh, fingers are going to get tired today. Ephesians, the first chapter. Paul, has, uh, Paul is expressing his first prayer for the Ephesians. And that his prayer is, in verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and here's the key, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And then it continues on. You see what Paul is saying? The same power that raised Christ from the dead, that immeasurable great power, is at work in those who follow Christ. The same power that said to Jesus, rise, put the soul and the person and body back together, opened up the tomb, let them walk out, or better yet, allow the people to walk in. That same power is at work within us who believe. I'm so weak, I can't do that. Think of the power that it would have taken to raise Christ from the dead, and that's at work within you. Paul's prayer is recognize it. And so when Paul says you can be victorious over sin, uh, that you can live a new life and the newness of life, he's not just spewing out platitudes. He's saying you have been given a new life and you've been given the new power to live that new life. Now work at it. And this is part of the second answer to that question what benefit answer two by his power we are also raised up to a new life Ephesians 2 4 to 7 talks about how we were dead in trespasses and sin we were helpless and hopeless but God raised us with Christ to a new life we call this the first resurrection at least I call it the first resurrection and that helps you understand Revelation 20 when it talks about the second resurrection. That's not one resurrection when Christ comes well, first time and the second time, resurrection later on. Your first resurrection was God took you from being dead and gave you new life. Now, it's spiritual. It's internal, but it's a resurrection. The second resurrection comes when Jesus comes back, which we'll take a look in a couple weeks. The image is that in that passage, and I'll allow you to read it, is that we were, it was as if we were in the grave with Christ when the stone was rolled away. And in God's mind, we were. Remember, God is omniscient. There's nothing new that he ever learns. He knows tomorrow as best as he learns yesterday. And everything is in his sight all at the same time. That's part of being infinite. So before he said, let there be light, he knew you, he knew Christ, he knew what was going to happen, 
And he knew that you were in Christ, you were with Christ when he rose from the dead. Not physically. That is an application that comes in your experience when he changes your heart, transforms you, and brings you into his family. But it's as if you had been raised at that time. He just took his time to make it real to you. And for some, he's taken a long, long time. But that's what, he, that's what it's like. And he has seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. We are united with Christ. One of the phrases that, two phrases that the Bible loves to do talking about God's people is that we are with him and we are in him. Uh, really, what, they're very similar, but they're different. And they talk about our union with Christ. And it's not that Christ is up there and we're down here. But we are with him and in him. It's like taking this piece of paper and putting it in this book. Can't see the paper, can you? I can't even see the paper. I sure hope I put it in the right place. You are with him. That paper is with this book. Wherever this book goes, that paper goes. You are in him. You are hidden. And so when God looks at you, and he looks at you, he sees not you, but he sees his son. And the beauty and the treasure of his son, he, he grants to you, graciously gives to you. And that's who you are. So when you sin and you you repent and you are, you know, you're really saddened by it, he's looking at you as if you had not sinned because he sees you in Christ. That's why we can joyfully go before the throne of grace, pleading our sins because he has already dealt with them in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And now... We have the ability to walk in the newness of life. Romans, sixth chapter of Romans. I'm going to put a request in for a bigger platform here. I I need more space. That's all there is to it, John. (laughs) No, no, I I can't can't put all my papers on. No, no, no. no. (laughs) Let me take a minute. I didn't explain this last week and I almost forgot about it. There's a reason why I teach from down here. That's a pulpit. That's a place for preaching the word of God. This is teaching. There is a difference between preaching and teaching. And the reason I'm down here, not only can I get to the whiteboard if I need it, but I want to show you I'm only teaching. I'm only trying to unfold the word of God to you. Preaching is proclaiming Christ and proclaiming what it means. And there is a difference between the two. Symbols are everything, as we're going to see when we get to the sacraments in a few weeks. Romans 6, now that I got myself distracted, uh, Paul is talking about in that first paragraph, that first section, 
is that we have been baptized into Christ's death, verse 3. Verse 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. Again, you see that parallel. We were baptized, we were raised. It's not something future. It's now. It's not something that happens when you get your head wet or uh, some other time. It has happened to you in Christ, with Christ we too might walk in newness of life. We cannot continue the old way. If you go back to chapter 13 of Romans, I'll make it easy for you. And you go back to verse 12. Paul is saying, the night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provisions for the flesh to gratify its desires. This was a verse that struck Augustine so profoundly and the Spirit used this verse to bring him that he would no longer live the way he did, but to walk properly, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provisions. If you look at Colossians 3, it's the same image. Put off the old by the renewing of your mind, put on the new. That's the whole process of life. And that power of the resurrection is the power that is at work with us to make it true. Then there's a third answer. The resurrection of Christ is to us a sure pledge of our blessed resurrection. And we'll go back to the passage we began, Colossians 3, 1 to 4, where Paul is combining this put on Christ, live a new life, walk out uh, a newness of life, if you have been raised with, with Christ, and again, it cannot be that he's talking about a future event. If you have been raised with Christ, if you have been born from above, if you've experienced the first resurrection, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Now, Understand, Paul is not saying to his readers, only think about heaven. What he is saying is that primarily, overall, foundationally, look to heaven. He doesn't say go out and don't work and sit in a corner and pray. He's not saying expect God to give you everything you need simply because you're a child. Because elsewhere, even in this letter, he talks about putting into practice and working and doing things. And, and let, as he says in Philippians, work out your salvation in fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work within you. Do what you're called to do, but do it in the mindset that that's not the most important thing. That's secondary. What's primary is focusing on the things that are to come. Focus on Christ in heaven. And he's not just talking about things that will come when Christ returns. 
but you focus in upon the person, the treasure that you have in Christ who provides everything you need for this life. You look to your treasure. That's a phrase that John Piper uses and I'm beginning to love more and more. That Christ is our treasure. You all have a treasure. It can be your car, it can be your home, it can be your family, it can be any number of things. Uh, it can be your bank account. And right now, for some people, it can be Wall Street. Yes, biggest bull market we've ever seen. You focus in on what you, what you treasure. And that becomes your primary viewpoint. This building could become our treasure. We have to remember, this building is only here so we can look at our true treasure Jesus Christ. And the resurrection of Christ is there to help us understand we will appear with him and therefore we are called to set our minds on him. What he's done, what he's doing, what he will do. What will be accomplished when he comes back. I mean, that's the key to our thinking. That's the focus of our learning. So when you read the Bible, you just don't read it for that little phrase that will help you make it through the day. Oh, yes. Or you just, for that life verse, that, oh, that, that sums up my life. No, that doesn't sum up your life. Christ sums up your life. And you don't just spend time with one of those daily devotional that gives you a verse and a nice little thing about it. You spend your time thinking about Christ your treasure, who he means to you and how you are to serve him and what you are to do. Again, in our day and age, Christ is sometimes portrayed as the one who serves us. If I pray, he'll give me, and you put, you finish out. Now, I pray because I treasure Christ more than anything else. And I want to tell him that, and I want to then give myself to do what he wants me to do. And that's what the resurrection does. It's a sure pledge that Christ is coming back, and in the meantime, not only is he coming back, but we will appear with him, as Colossians 3 says. When Christ is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Christ is your life. More than that, it is to be people who serve him beyond anything else. That's the focus. So when you wake up in the morning, you don't wake up in the morning and say, oh, good Lord, it's morning. You wake up and say, good Lord, it's morning. What can I do with you and for you this day? Uh, and then you have the first Peter passage which says we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and we have an inheritance. And that is indeed our great hope. We have an inheritance we're looking forward to. And Peter says it's incorruptible, cannot be stained, cannot be changed. One of the reasons why people look at the stock market is because they're our IRA and their 401B or C or D or C or whatever it is are wrapped up in the stock market. As long as it's going up, 
their inheritance, their retirement is secured. And when it goes down, they go, oh man, I got to work harder. No, our, our inheritance and our true inheritance is unchanging because Christ has been raised from the dead. It's undefiled, it's pure and perfect. It can't be marred. I have a car. I have a car that has a scratch on it. It's marred. I have a car that has a dent in it and I put it in there. It's marred. But I have an inheritance that cannot be scratched or marred. It's short. Not faded away. Cannot disappear. Cannot evaporate. Cannot just all of a sudden go poof. Gone. But because of the resurrection of Christ, that is our inheritance. Put your mind on that. Put your mind and, you know, settle that in your, in your thinking and as a focus of your life and you will begin to realize what the resurrection really means to you, the benefit. Nothing can take it away. And when Christ comes back, this poor, perishable, mortal, weak body will all of a sudden become imperishable, Immortal, strong. I won't have to worry about having another knee operation. You take it, whatever it means. You won't have to worry about that short, sore shoulder. It will be gone. And that is what the catechism is saying is about that section, the resurrection of Christ from Apostles' Creed. So what is your only comfort in life and in death? that I belong body and soul to my Lord Jesus Christ. And part of that is I have been resurrected with him. And the life I have is a brand new life and I walk in the newness of life. I can be victorious over my sin. I can serve God. I can be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For that is what pleases him. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, it is a joy always to be with you for you are the pleasure of our life, the treasure of our life. It is always good to hear from the word of God and that which you have given to us because it is you speaking to us. Therefore, it is my prayer that what I have taught, O Lord, that comes from your word and is for us may be sealed by your spirit into our hearts and minds that it may be there to be pulled out when we need it the most, and that we may live in the light of who you have revealed yourself to be, not for our glory, not for our honor, but for the treasure that we have, who is your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for providing for all of this in your grace and for your glory. And we offer ourselves to this end in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen.